Welcome to the podcast, People More Interesting Than Me. I'm your host, Michael Strumsky, where every week I host a new guest with unique professions, personal adversity, or even maybe a strong opinion or two. And if you haven't hit the five stars review on Apple Podcasts, please hit it now before you forget. Running a podcast is a surprising amount of work, and more reviews converts into a wider range of future guests. My guest this week, the marvelous Mallory Fidner, is on an inspiring mission to empower individuals and foster environments where neurodiverse teammates are not only acclimated, but celebrated. With unwavering dedication, she works tirelessly to break down barriers and create spaces where every unique mind can thrive and shine. Drawing from her own personal journey as a neurodivergent individual, Mallory brings a profound understanding and firsthand knowledge to their advocacy. She believes that the key to unlocking the incredible potential of neurodiversity lies in embracing and celebrating the diverse ways our brains are wired. Through Mallory's work, she equips individuals with the tools and knowledge to embrace their neurodivergent strengths, fostering a sense of self-worth and empowerment. Hey, Michael, how's it going? Hello. Okay, the most important question that I didn't write down here. What type of family was yours? Was it like, so just to give you a frame of reference so you can answer correctly, um, my family was big you put the toast in the toaster, you take it out, then you put peanut butter on top. You don't put them together. You eat them like that. What was your like go-to like peanut butter base type? Like we're hungry, but we don't want to like do anything. <laughs> yeah. Um, I mean, I started making myself PB&Js at a very young age because I was a very particular child and I had to have the exact ratio of peanut butter to jelly. So I think I was probably like seven or eight years old whenever I mm -hmm. started to do those things for myself. And um, that kind of goes along with like a lot of the other things that I've done on my own in, uh, in my life mm -hmm. is uh, I, I just have a particular way of doing things. And so I kind of learned that independently. And what's your opinion on crustables? I mean, they're a pretty good snack, um, but I don't find them necessary. I think the crust is perfectly adequate. <laughs> yeah, I, I think I was, maybe I wasn't too old for that. I don't know. I, I, I love the idea of it, but just paying for peanut butter sandwiches, just, sorry. I was never a peanut butter, like a pb and my family wasn't PB and J family for some reason. We were just peanut butter sandwiches and stuff like that. I don't know if that makes me a minimalist or I don't know. <laughs> Sorry that I don't I don't know if you loved or hated that intro question, but uh, I feel like you engage a person based on their like uh, laziness uh, <laughs> meal. Every family has that like oh we made ramen and we threw some sriracha in it. Yeah, I think it was cereal. I think it's still cereal to this day. Like uh, me and all my sisters and my mom, we we all will just have like a late night snack of, of cereal. I mean, you mentioned cereal. You gotta you gotta tell me what the what the go to was. <sighs> I mean, we we would always get the generic stuff. So we had like oh, there's nothing wrong beans. with that. They're always they're always close. <laughs> they're always they're close. yeah. They're like uh, 
I'm trying to think of a generic Lucky Charms. It would be like the pot of gold or something like that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, there was like the the Reese's Puffs, the generic version of those. I actually still buy those to this day. <laughs> I mean, to be fair, you can just eat those. You don't even need the milk. But if you do, then you've got like chocolate milk left over after. But everybody knows that. I don't need to say that. But let, I guess let's get down to the non-cereal business. Uh, can you briefly explain your job, neurodiverse, what neurodiversity actually is and uh, why why is it important in the workplace? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so I'm a neurodiversity consultant and a career coach for neurodivergent individuals. And, um, you know, the, the term neurodiversity is a fairly new concept, but it's essentially the recognition and celebration of just the different neurological differences that make us all unique. And so it's a really broad spectrum. There's a lot of different um, categories that fall into it, but it includes some things like autism and ADHD and dyslexia and a bunch more other things that I haven't specifically called out. Um, as far as like how it is important in the workplace, um, like I said, it's a pretty new concept. It hasn't really made its way into the mainstream diversity, equity, and inclusion initiatives that we're seeing in the workplace. Um, and my mission is to change that. Uh, neurodivergent individuals we often have like different ways of thinking, problem solving, and just perceiving the world in general. Uh, and I wanna show organizations that by embracing neurodiversity, they can benefit from fresh perspectives and they can see improvements in creativity and innovation and collaboration. Um, so that's what I do and I'm really excited about it. <laughs> no, that's awesome. What are, with your job, what are some, I guess, common challenges that neurodivergent employees face in the workplace? What are, um, I guess, the big ones that they can kind of focus on? Yeah, um, I mean, me personally, I've worked a lot of different jobs. Um, I've worked in offices, industrial environments, like food service, retail, et cetera. Um, and I kind of find that the challenges are one of two categories. It's either the environment or it's like the communication with others. And I've found little ways to work around and ways to improve both with some adjustments. Um, so just for some context, I'm autistic and ADHD. I was diagnosed like relatively late in my late twenties. And so that kind of adds an additional layer of um, figuring it out as I go. But um, some of my challenges that I encounter are I'm sensitive to noises and to lights and smells and temperatures. And I also find it really hard to sit still and I am very easily distracted. So as you can imagine, it was pretty difficult for me to work in like an open office uh, environment. And so I found kind of early in my career, I would, I would manage and I had jobs where I had to work in an office and going every day, but I would come home at the end of the day, just like totally drained from having to cope with this environment that was just like so overwhelming on my senses. And at the time I didn't know what was causing that. Um, you know, another challenge that a lot of neurodivergent individuals face is, is communicating with coworkers or with customers. And 
for me, like I struggle to understand sometimes when people are using indirect language and I have a hard time interpreting social cues or like group dynamics. So earlier on in my career, it was a little hard to connect with the colleagues because it just like felt like I was speaking a different language and I didn't know all the rules of social interaction. So like I said, I was diagnosed whenever I was 27 and um, with autism and ADHD. And once I had that framework for understanding myself a bit better, I actually did make it easier to connect with my colleagues because I was better able to advocate for my own needs. So now I'm very open and I'm direct about my neurodivergence and I give others the tools that they need to communicate with me. So I have no problem saying like, hey, I'm not sure I understood your requests. Can you be more direct? And it's worked really well for me and that's just me personally, but like it's not on it's not all on us neurodivergent folks to adapt to our environment. There's also ways to tackle these challenges at the organizational level too. And you know, some of the, the changes are um, beneficial for all employees, not just the, the neurodiverse ones. Yeah, definitely. One thing uh, I think you mentioned maybe before the interview or on our previous talk, uh, it, it never, it never, crossed my mind that educating like everyone else would be huge too because I, like I had only thought of it from basically the applicants or the the employees but it's huge that I mean if you educate basically the environment around them and the people around them which is I guess the same thing the people and the environment oh you mentioned other cues too but uh I I feel like that's huge just because then it's kind of like you're aware you're not it, it's hard to explain i guess from my opinion yeah and i i don't think it's malice or anything like that i think it's just like a lack of understanding yeah it, a lack of like openness about it too um it is a little bit um intimidating i guess to come to people that you work with or maybe even people who are in charge of your career trajectory and say hey i'm different and i need you to change xyz things so that i can be more successful like that's mm -hmm. um that's kind of intimidating and i think we are starting to get there on making those conversations more prominent in mm -hmm. the workplace, but um, we still have a long way to go. And, and a lot of that just starts with like awareness and kind of education. And I think everybody wants their their coworkers to feel comfortable and be successful in the workplace. And so that's, that's the first step of doing it. And if we're asking for things that are pretty reasonable, um, it's kind of a win-win for everybody. Yeah, definitely. So, I mean, for like preemptive steps for employers, what can they, how do they create an, like an inclusive and a supportive environment for neurodivergent employees? Yeah, so um, kind of thinking along the lines of there's the the physical environment, which I'll touch on in a second, but then there's also just the, the culture um, within a workplace. Every organization kind of has its own company culture and it's, really important to 
include in that embracing different styles of thinking and like different perspectives that people might bring. Um, and so for, for me, a lot of my career involved high level problem solving. Um, I worked in sales and marketing consultant consulting for a while. And I would often look at things in maybe just like a different way than the rest of my peers. But um, the best manager I ever had knew I was autistic and kind of leaned into my different perspective. So instead of insisting that problems be solved in a specific way, he kind of kept in like open mind and let me lead with my thought process and asking like for clarification as needed. And so not only did this like reduce misunderstandings, but it also led to more creative solutions because I felt comfortable asking questions and exploring more ambiguous ideas without feeling like, oh, this person is going to think that I am not capable or I don't know what I'm talking about or that was a really dumb question. Um, and so I think a big part of that is making people feel comfortable um, in any work scenario where they have to collaborate and exchange ideas and, and making sure that there's like respect for people's different way of processing information. As far as like the uh, physical environment, um, this is really the central issue of my neurodiversity advocacy. I help organizations look at where maybe they're lacking in terms of accommodation or their physical environment is um, not very sensory friendly or just their company culture in general. And we work together on developing a strategy to address those gaps. And so it looks different for every workplace, um, but my, my number one suggestion of where to start for making a place more inclusive is gonna make me pretty unpopular with certain CEOs, but my piece of advice is to give people the flexibility to choose where they wanna work, um, whether that's from their office or from their home. And obviously there's gonna be some limitations to that, but remote work can make just an incredible difference for neurodivergent employees for me, it allowed me to have more control over my environment and minimize distractions. In the past, what, year and a half, two years, all the CEOs and all these big business people are like, oh, they need to get back to work. But I mean, I understand that for obviously, you know, stuff that has to be done in person, like food service industry, um, you know, like everything that needs hands to actual physical things. But if you're using computer jobs, networking, basically anything that can be done through a computer or a phone, everything can be done telework. The only big stuff is like R&D. I, I work in R&D, so that's, everything has to be kind of hands-on. Um, but outside of that, yeah. I mean, if you're comfortable with it and you're doing um, the right amount of like hours and your your synergy with your team is good, I don't I don't really see an issue with that. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that was just such a, a big revelation for me. Um, I worked in an office. I actually traveled a lot for work all the way up into until the pandemic. Um, and then I went full time remote. And now I have just the the, the best setup for myself. I have um, my nice little office where I can control the lighting, I can control the temperature. Um, I'm able to 
take breaks throughout the day and kind of decompress from stressful situations or uh, draining meetings. And I wouldn't have that if I um, wasn't able to work from home. I would kind of be spending a lot of my energy on just dealing with the environment around me and it would, you know, take some of my brain power away from what I'm able to actually accomplish at work. So like I said, obviously there's some limitations and um, not every every environment's not gonna be suited for remote work. And in that case, there are still some things that um, employers can do to make their spaces more accommodating. So some of it might just be like offering flexible seating arrangements. Um, I'm a I'm a fidgeter and it's really hard for me to like get comfortable in a seat. I like to be able to walk walk around and change working from different places. I just like, bring my laptop and uh, work from different locations throughout the day. And um, you know, another thing that you can do is using more natural lighting rather than the harsh fluorescent bulbs that are over top of a sea of cubicles. Um, and then also like designating quiet spaces where people can kind of go to, to, to get some deep focus on work or just kind of decompress. Um, when I used to work in an office, it was kind of like an open floor plan and you would hear coworkers conversations all throughout the day. And I just have such a hard time like focusing on reading something or completing a task in front of me whenever I hear all these sounds or, um, you know, I'm able to hear somebody coughing from three cubicles over. It's just having uh, a little bit more flexibility in terms of the, the noise level. Oh, that, that sounds very pleasant. It sounds very, it sounds like the book I just read that, that spoke to me. What was it? Uh, that's the funny thing. I read books, but I don't remember the title because I'm so into the book. I don't know if you have, the, and I especially don't remember the author, which is the worst part. <laughs> uh, deep work, I think it was. It was just like, I was so focused on everything going around, but the slightest small things will just like completely derail me. And I'm like 20 minutes to get back into what I was doing. Sorry. Now I got to get back into the questions. <laughs> uh, so we talked about the employers and more importantly, the environment. What are, I guess, some of the best strategies and techniques that are that you use to help the neurodivergent individuals kind of um, push their careers? Yeah, absolutely. So I, um, I offer one-on-one -on -one coaching and group coaching to neurodivergent individuals. And a lot of what this focuses on is like the process of landing a job and covering topics like finding a good fit for your skills and your interests. Um, and then also how to put your best foot forward in an interview while still being true to yourself. Um, interviews and job hunting in general are really tricky for neurodivergent folks because um, there is oftentimes a specific profile that your interviewer is looking for you to fit. And, um, you know, I find that whenever I'm in interview mode, I don't feel like myself. I feel like I'm playing a character. Um, and so what I try to focus on is, you know, take a strengths-based approach and really double down on, on the things that you are personally good at and 
personally passionate about and come through in that interview with enthusiasm about those items and um, just be really authentic to yourself. I, you know, I've disclosed in interviews that I'm autistic and ADHD and sometimes it's been fine and sometimes I have gotten a rejection email immediately. So that's a very personal decision. Um, and it really is situation dependent, but just the, the your career in general is a highly personal thing and not every strategy is going to work for every person. Um, but I work on, I have a blog that covers topics like how do you ask for accommodations? How do you avoid getting burnt out? Um, whether or not should you disclose your disability status at work. And I'm also working on a book that covers these topics and some more information as well. And so I'm really excited to put that out into the world. Oh, yeah, that's awesome. And we can talk about that more at the end, too. And we can put some links. Yeah. Uh, so I guess going forward with that, what is your opinion on, I guess, these employees self-advocating for themselves. Um, and I guess, how do you personally help them with those to develop those skills? Yeah. Um, well, no one's going to be a better advocate for you than you. Uh, personally, I'm very open about my autism and ADHD, but not everyone is comfortable um, disclosing that at work. And that's completely valid as well. For me, like I just find that I'm able to come across more authentically and I'm able to um, I'm able to advocate for myself better whenever I have the framework of, hey, I'm struggling with this because of my autism or I'm struggling with this because of my ADHD. Um, that framework kind of helps me put it into context of like, what am I really asking for? And so my general advice is to make sure that your self-advocacy is actionable. So if I want a coworker to, um, you know, change the way that they communicate with me slightly, I might say, hey, I just want to make sure that I understood your request. Can you put it in like a couple of bullet points? And I don't need to explain that that is in order to accommodate my ADHD. It's just something that is perfectly reasonable that everybody would be able to um, have their own thing that they can ask for. Mm -hmm. So I also say to set an example for how you want others to communicate with you. So if it helps you to have an agenda for a big meeting, for example, so that you know what to expect, no one's going to know that unless you ask. And so it's okay to, to email the meeting organizer and say, hey, can you send an agenda? Or you know, what, what I would do is start sending out my own agendas and kind of set the example that this is what I am looking for. And hopefully people will uh, also take part as well. I guess, do you help some employees? Let's say they have like a big ass, like uh, I want to make sure that all the light bulbs in the whole building are um, uh, soft, soft white. Like, do you try to like, hey, we, we can do that maybe for like the hallway outside your office and then maybe in the um, your office. But I, I don't think it's reasonable to um, 
do like the, the whole whole office you know what I mean or or maybe it is yeah no there definitely is a line in terms of like what's reasonable and what's not reasonable um and the 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 goal is to kind of find a solution that is that works for all the parties involved um and so I I would encourage people to start small and maybe get buy-in from like their direct manager or maybe a, a person in HR if you have a close relationship with them and ask for their thoughts too on, hey, what do you think can be done? Like, here are some ideas that I have. Um, what do you think about these? And kind of make it a collaborative back and forth situation. Um, there, they might even come up with some solutions that you hadn't thought of yet. Uh, so, so definitely keep that conversation open and provide two-way feedback. So ask for their feedback and then also provide it to them as well. Yeah. And the other thing I was thinking about is, I mean, there could be plenty of people who are, are neurodivergent too, and haven't spoke up at all, or never thought to actually get help where those things could actually help them break out of their shell or make their life a lot more. So it wouldn't just maybe be helping you. It could be helping a lot of people at your company or wherever you're working. Yeah, exactly. Um, yeah. And so the, the important thing is like, uh, you know, focus on put yourself first, um, focus on what, what would help me. And, you know, for example, if the noise level in the office is like too much for you, see if you can bring in some noise canceling headphones and um most places that i'm aware of wouldn't really have a problem with that some places it's situation dependent um but there's like lots of other little workarounds maybe you can ask to have your desk moved to a different area if it's uh too loud or too bright or um too noisier or whatever so i guess obviously this being a new topic for me, what, what are, I guess, in your experience, what are some of the misconceptions or, or stereotypes about neurodivergent individuals in the workplace? And how do you, what are your, I guess, your techniques on how to address them? So neurodiversity is, it's just such a broad spectrum. Um, I mentioned earlier, you know, it includes things like autism and ADHD, dyslexia, dyscalculia, um, and a variety of other categories. And so some of the misconceptions um, that would be involved with that are pretty broad as well. And the general public might have some knowledge of neurodiversity and they might be well-informed and some people have never heard of it. So everyone's just kind of starting from a different place but it's important to approach it with like compassion and understanding and just uh, genuine desire to educate and not like a desire to, to shame anyone or you know make them feel bad. And so some of the misconceptions that I would say uh, need to be addressed are just the fact that neurodivergent folks are not less capable or intelligent than others. Um, in fact, we often have unique perspectives and unique skills that positively contribute to the workplace. We don't lack 
like the social skills or the ability to work collaboratively. Sometimes there are just some minor adjustments that would need to be made in order to help neurodivergent folks connect with their neurotypical coworkers. And then also accommodations aren't always burdensome. Sometimes even like minor accommodations will actually improve the environment for all employees and not just the neurodivergent folks to your point earlier. So also I think it's important to remember that there's not really a limit to our career potential. Uh, neurodivergent people are in all different careers, all different like levels. Um, we've got tons of different skills, tons of different like education backgrounds. And we can be leaders, mentors, executives, whatever, whatever they want to be. And what's important is also including some more representation in higher level positions and creating those opportunities for folks to reach their full potential in their careers. Yeah, of course, because if they see someone, I mean, it's it's like that for anything you see. I mean, most most people look at like celebrities or big CEOs. I mean, uh, I believe uh Eminem has autism I think uh I mean Michael J Fox has I mean you look at diseases and then you hear somebody who has said disease you're like oh blah 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 has it in there they're fine so I think I can do it you know what I mean like they look up to people who are already in positions of power or yeah not, not even positions yeah. of power but they're doing a great job at a nonprofit or something like that and they're like, okay yeah it's been um like stigmatized for so long, um, especially like autism, ADHD to some extent too, although in my opinion, maybe not as much as autism. Um, and so people are maybe a little bit hesitant to come out and say, uh, hey, I'm autistic and I'm the leader of XYZ company. Um, and I'll, another possible explanation to that is just like, awareness and access to like diagnosis and um, just the, the level of research into this field is all relatively new. And so you have people who are, there's a whole cohort of people out there who are late diagnosed like myself. I mean, I grew up in the nineties and um, I was, you know, a, a little girl in the 90s and so it wasn't autism was just like maybe not as highly recognized in little girls as it was in boys and I didn't present all the same traits as what they were looking for and so it kind of got missed and I'm not the only one who has that experience yeah I feel like for all the bad things that the internet has it does spread some good information and it's a good place i guess and i mean i think a lot of people can attest to this like for example i have ms so and sometimes it's bad sometimes it's good to go on the chat rooms because you you have other people who are feeling the same stuff as you feeling the same symptoms so you can kind of uh feel their pain but also sometimes it's really scary to see people who are really suffering um and be able to give support and stuff like that which is really awesome too but also yeah. spread knowledge like you said like i think obviously you know the 90s you know dial up you know that 
information was starting to slowly spread. You didn't need to have, I don't know if you had this in your house, but encyclopedias A from Z, whenever you needed to do a school report, <laughs> you needed to pull like all the volumes and you were looking through and you're like, oh man, it, it's so funny that. Yeah, sorry. I have a funny story about the the encyclopedias. I um had a period of time when I was like maybe seven or eight years old where I just read the encyclopedia <laughs> for some reason. I just thought that it was the most fascinating thing in the world for me. I got very focused on it for for quite a couple of months. How, how far did you make it? I think I made it like all the way to the end of the D. <laughs> the D. I mean. That's still, that's still amazing. And you probably wanted to just understand everything. You're like, okay, if I read A to Z, I'll probably get, I won't need to like, I won't need to learn anything else. Cause if I've read a full encyclopedia, what else do I need to learn? I think I liked that it was um, alphabetized and like structured for me so that I, I was kind of like you said, if I read A to Z, then I know everything that I need to know. Um, and so I kind of liked taking that like very, uh, structured approach and categorized all of my knowledge into uh just the first couple of letters of the alphabet of course um so you've mentioned both sides basically the individual and the company like properly educating what is what is i guess a good way to foster that relationship for i guess better understanding and acceptance for bringing both parties together i guess yeah, so I kind of think about this uh, on a couple of different levels, all the way from like the the highly structured level to just the um, more informal interpersonal level. On the the side of like the highly structured route to understanding neurodiversity, I, I offer workshops on neurodiversity in workplaces for large and small organizations. And these are in person or virtual, but they're just like a really great opportunity to provide a high level overview of what neurodiversity is, why is it important to your organization, and like ways to promote inclusivity within the workplace. And um, it's a really interesting and informative session because people get a chance to ask the questions that they have maybe had but didn't have um, a place to ask it and then we can all kind of learn from each other and um, it's just a really great way to like start the conversation and get people talking about different ways to to show inclusion and acceptance within their own workplace so that's a that's a great place to start um, but at the same time, maybe some organizations are starting from a different place. And um, in those cases, like I'll work with HR or with their DEI leaders, diversity, equity, and inclusion, and assess really what does the organization need, um, get feedback from their employees, which is always really interesting to dive into, and then come up with like a tailored plan to implement it. So that's like a, another kind of more, more structured approach. Mm -hmm. And on the informal level, I advocate for having these conversations and um, you know, taking the lens of how can I be more inclusive to my coworkers on an interpersonal level. And so with this, I've written some blog posts about how coworkers or managers can better support a neurodiverse teammate. And these tools are, you know, 
more informal, they're free to access. Um, and then on like, as on a personal note, like I had a really great experience with having a conversation about neurodiversity in the, the last place that I worked, I was at a small consulting firm. There was about uh, about 100 or so employees. And we I had an opportunity to share um, information about my autism diagnosis and ADHD and how it shows up in work. And it I got a ton of support from my coworkers and people were reaching out to me and saying, hey, I, I didn't realize this about you. Like, is there anything that I can do that will help you and I work better together? And I think that's like a, also a really great place to start. The only problem with that is that you need to have a person that's willing to raise their hand and say, hey, let me start the conversation. And you know, like I touched on before, that's a really scary thing to do. So I had a great experience with uh, kind of coming out as autistic to my workplace and I had a lot of support, but not everybody is going to have that experience. So it's like very situation dependent. Um, but I'm, you know, really grateful for, for all the support and for having a group of, of coworkers who were willing to ask questions and um, learn more about me and kind of meet me halfway. Yeah, I bet that was a, a really great day, wasn't it? Uh, yeah, it was great. And I, uh, I had a chance to kind of explain at a really high level what autism is. And I mean, we were a very diverse group of people and some people had no experience or knowledge of it. And some people were, were quite knowledgeable, but in order to come up with meaningful solutions, you have to start the conversation first. Mm -hmm. Yeah, because nobody's 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 going to start it for you because they don't know. If if you're waiting on someone else to, I guess, make accommodations for you, yeah, I, I understand what you're trying to say. It's what you're thinking, you're feeling, what you're going through, except for yourself. Yeah, so, no one knows what you need. And everyone needs different things. Yeah, makes sense. And let me, and when you came in the next Monday, because I, I don't know if you've have ever had a job where basically every Sunday you had uh, what is the Sunday scaries? Is that what they, <laughs> they call it? Oh yeah, I would always get the Sunday scaries. But did it did it make the Sunday scaries like less? Like now that you kind of had a more like a less tense atmosphere, like less dense, like you kind of, I don't know, any, anything yeah, like that? I think I, I, I felt like I was able to be more authentic. Um, when you are presenting yourself in a certain way, the neurodiverse community kind of calls it masking. And so you're, you're masking um, these traits that make you who you are. And I, you know, before I was able to come out and tell people that I worked with that I have autism, like they, um, I would kind of play the part of a character that I didn't really connect with. Um, I would 
stop myself from asking questions in fear of, oh, maybe they're going to think that I am not capable or it's not going to come out right. And uh, once I was able to kind of just, it took a little while, but I was able to be more authentic and, and represent myself with who I really felt like I was, those miscommunications and the stress that came along with um, worrying about how I'm being perceived kind of went away because I was able to, to just be like, hey, you know, this is me. I'm sorry if I don't say this in the exact right way. Sometimes I trip over my words. Um, sometimes it takes me a little bit of time to, to understand what you're communicating, but there are all these other strengths that I have and that, that I celebrate. And I think setting a good example and thinking about yourself in a positive way and celebrating your own strengths gives the people that you work with the framework to also think about you in that way. So I, I would try to not dwell on my perceived shortcomings. Um, and yeah, just really just take that strengths-based approach and, and be um, genuine and honest and um, just accepting of who I am. Yeah. Uh, so you, you've been doing this for a little bit. What what have you seen that, I guess, the long-term benefits for employers in actively kind of embracing the uh, neurodiversity in the workplace? Yeah, yeah. So um, neurodiversity, it's, it's kind of a newer concept, but we've already seen to an extent that, like, embracing diversity in general has been shown to provide a competitive advantage for organizations. And this is why we're seeing so much investment in diversity, equity, and inclusion, DEI programs. Um, neurodiversity is like a lesser known component within that broader DEI strategy, but there's already a lot of positive signs that it pays off in the long run. So, for example, Harvard Business Review did a report where they found that companies can actually improve creativity and drive business growth by embracing neurodiversity. Um, Deloitte put out a report on expanding the talent pool and how it can broaden the capabilities of an organization and tapping into skill sets and capabilities that might not have already existed. Um, and then the Society of human resource managers looked into how embracing neurodiversity in the workplace can enhance a employer's brand image and attract top talent to come work for them. So there's definitely benefits out there for companies who are embracing this concept. And I also, I, I have to point out as a neurodiversity advocate that like, According to 2023 statistics from the U.S. Department of Labor, at least 85% of autistic adults with a college education are currently unemployed. Um, so clearly there's a huge opportunity to diversify the workplace and in turn close this employment gap. Yeah. And I guess just some small 
I guess not tips, but what what are some big ways that I guess employees can navigate and manage workplace stress and sensory overload effectively, I guess? Yeah, so my number one tip is to to try to work in a setting that is conducive to your needs wherever possible. Um, for me, that's my like cozy little home office that I have set up exactly the way I want it. Um, but for other people that might look different, might, some people might like to work from an office, some people might wanna work from a coffee shop or a co-working space or whatever it might be. So um, when you are, when you're going out into the world and you wanna mitigate any issue of like sensory overload, um, I get overwhelmed in like almost all public settings, but the preparation of that is is key. So I bring the tools with me that I need to cope. So I carry a backpack everywhere and I have like an endless supply of earplugs, um, sunglasses, I'll carry a mask around because I'm sensitive to smells. Um, I'll have like a little fidget toy and uh, a water bottle just to make sure that like I'm taking care of myself as I go throughout the day. Um, also not to forget snacks. Snacks are very important for me. And I also live in Las Vegas. So if I know I'm gonna go to a loud and a crowded place like the Las Vegas Strip, um, I scope it out ahead of time and make sure I know where I'm going so that I'm not um, lost and overwhelmed at the same time. And I check out some quiet spots and see, okay, where can I decompress for a couple of moments? Um, and I found that this strategy also kind of helps with like work conferences as well. So definitely check in with yourself, um, take breaks when you need to. Don't forget to kind of remove yourself from the situation if you are feeling a little bit overwhelmed and then prepare yourself to go back into that situation with the tools that you need to deal with it. Yeah, that sounds like an excellent plan. Sorry, I was just baffled that that you live in, in Las Vegas too, just <laughs> because... I mean, besides that, I would think New York City would be the 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 second worst or number one worst spot. And then Las Vegas yeah. is like, I, I know they say New York City is the place that never sleeps, but I've been to Las Vegas and that's like the the second city that doesn't sleep as well. Yeah, Las Vegas is the worst possible place for, um, you know, a person with with sensory sensitivities like me. Um, but I don't go down to the strip very often. It's kind of just when people are in town or if I'm going to like a, a show there. And so whenever I go, it is a whole excursion. Like I, I prepare myself, I pack my bag. Um, you know, I, I, I make sure I wear like clothing and shoes that are comfortable because the last thing that I need is like a blister on my foot or something in addition yeah. to all the noise and all the crowds and the crazy flashing lights that are just totally overwhelming. Um, so yeah, I try to, I try to make sure I'm, I'm well prepared for it, but it can be fun in small doses. <laughs> Yeah, it, it sounds like what I do when I'm about to get ready for a flight. I'm like, okay, 
comfy clothes. Like I got my snacks. I don't have to pay $18 for a Toblerone and <laughs> just like knocked out for the whole flight. Yeah, um, I like to wear a, a hoodie on a flight and like put it up over my eyes and then just kind of like cinch it around my face so that I'm this little uh this sound like Kenny bug. from South Park. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I'm like a, I'm like a, in my little shell and yeah. that's where that's where no, I spend that's, time. That's good. There's definitely going to be like a uh industry for just like knocked out. Like you get to the airport, they knock you out and then they wake you up when you're outside the other airport that's like as close to teleportation as we're gonna get yeah yeah agreed uh so we're gonna get down to the last question the last question is what is something that your parents did that you'd like to pass on to a next generation and what's something that you would do uh, a little differently with the next generation or what's something new that you'd like to incorporate that you haven't seen yeah, I I actually love that my parents just kind of let me be my weird little self. Um, like I said, I grew up in the 90s. I wasn't diagnosed as autistic or ADHD until my late 20s. And a part of that might just be like the lack of awareness on how I processed the world differently. Um, my parents just kind of like let me have the freedom to be different and to be myself and didn't really impose any expectations on me. And so I was a pretty quiet kid. I got really good grades and kind of flew under the radar in school. And I spent a lot of time alone, reading, doing puzzles, reading the encyclopedia. <laughs> and um, I remember I would just spend hours of my day roaming around the woods near my house, just walking around, getting totally lost in my own thoughts. And so I thought it was like really cool that my parents let me have that level of freedom and ability to just kind of be by myself and figure out who I was. And as a kid, I fidgeted a lot and it was really hard to get me to sit still. And that's still true even to this day, but they never really made me feel like it was a problem that had to be corrected. So I appreciate that because it, it helped me with my self-esteem and not feeling like uh, there was something wrong with me. And as far as like, you know, what to pass on to the next generation, I, I think it's really important to respect the autonomy of the next generation and treat them the way that I would have been wanted to be treated. And I don't work with neurodivergent kids, but I do have a lot of empathy for their struggles because I've been there myself and I know how hard it can be to exist in a world that's just not built for us. So that's the one thing I'd wanna pass on is just empathy, understanding, patience, no, those are great. Those are great and new answers. So I love them. I'll add them to the collection. <laughs> uh, okay. What, while you're here, what's, what's something you want to promote, put out there? I host most of my web, my content on my website. Uh, my website is MalloryJoy.com. And there you can check out blog articles, which are updated weekly. And I also am working on a book 
that is targeted to neurodivergent professionals and includes a lot of the tips that I covered in this podcast and are also on my blog, plus some additional topics that I'm going to be covering as well. So look out for that to be coming down the pipeline in the next six months or so. And I also would want to invite people to join my LinkedIn group, the Neurodiversity Collective. And it's just a place where neurodiverse professionals can ask questions and exchange ideas. Um, We were talking before about how important it is to have community and especially in a world that is like, um, we're so spread out all over the place. And so I, I love to connect with people from different walks of life, from different locations and talk about um, their their experiences and exchange ideas on ways that we can promote inclusivity and advocacy for, for neurodiversity. And yeah, lastly, I would just say if anybody wants to connect with me, they can just send me an email. It's coach at MalloryJoy.com or just book a time on my calendar, which can be found on my website. And that's great. And I'll, if anyone's interested, uh, when I post this up, uh, I'll put the links uh, with all my posts as well. But uh, thank you very much for taking your time, being on the show. I really appreciate it. A lot of good. That's the best thing with these interviews. I always learn something new. There's like, and, and this was a good one. So th- oh, thank good. you very much for coming on. Yeah, I'm glad that it was uh, useful for you. And thank you so much for having me. I hope it was fun. Like I said, at the beginning of the interview, I try to make it fun as as possible. Obviously, it's not like moon bounce fun, but like in, <laughs> yeah, enjoyable was, talk fun. It was fun. We we covered a lot of um, a lot of interesting topics. And I think that we we double clicked into some other topics that were were interesting to explore. And now maybe you'll break out the encyclopedias. <laughs> I know. I got to I gotta get myself one of those. It's I, always fun to just flip to a random page and learn something new. That's the sad part. They're probably, they should at least burn them if, if I don't know. There's got to be a, like an influx of an encyclopedias after the internet. Like yeah. Wikipedia obviously is probably the main killer, but uh <laughs> But thanks again, um, and I guess have a great night. Yeah, thanks so much. You too. This was great. If you like this week's episode of People More Interesting Than Me, please follow me on Apple Podcasts so you won't miss out on more episodes like these.